Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your social media feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, the author of the novel Brotherless Night. And we get to take that forthcoming out, as our last episode <laughs> explained. Um, I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. So, Wit, did you ever live in New York City as a young literary person? I totally did, and that was exactly why I came to New York. I moved there in the winter of 1995 to 96. I was right out of grad school. I lived in a fourth floor, third or fourth floor, I can't quite remember, walk up on 13th and 3rd in the Lower East Side, which I rented from a friend from grad school. Thank you, buddy, Um, because the rent was cheap. Uh, My sister lived with me. I remember that my college roommate, Pierre Theodore, was helping me paint the apartment during a huge snowstorm on January 6th, which totally shut down the city. And we walked down the middle of 13th Street, clear across to the West Village until we found a bar that would serve us food. Did you have a New York period? I did. I lived in New York from 2006 to 2009, but um, that was much later period. So if you lived in New York in the 90s and you were trying to find your feet in the book industry, I have got the perfect novel for you. I've been waiting for the six years this podcast has been on the air to talk about Tama Janowitz and Jay McInerney. No, Goofald, this they're from the 80s. This is your era. <laughs> Your time, the Nicholson-Baker 90s, and you know the book that I'm talking about because you just read it. It's Dan Quist's new novel, Vintage Contemporaries. That is correct. Uh, And that whole bit about where I pretended not to know what you were talking about was just a podcasting bit because I I wrote this script. It was my turn, uh, which is the kind of meta, ironic, cool thing that all of us young literary types would have done back in the 90s had podcasting existed. You wish. Maybe the phrase literary type screwed that up as in coolness factor. (laughs) That's presuming there was a coolness factor. However, as mentioned, we do have someone who can actually tell us what was and was not cool in literary 90s New York and in the decades after that. And that's Dan Coyce, the author of Vintage Contemporaries, which is coming out next week. Dan's bio on his website says, Dan Coyce is a writer, editor, and podcaster who lives in Arlington, Virginia. Eventually, he will move back to Hawaii. Uh, I feel very sympathetic to that as I look out at the inches and inches of snow here in Minneapolis. But we are not a short bio podcast. We are a long bio podcast. So I'm going to go ahead and add that Dan was the founding editor of New York Magazine's arts and culture blog, Vulture. He's written for New York, the New York Times, the Washington Post, Slate, and other newspapers and magazines. He's the author of the nonfiction books, Facing Future, The World Only Spins Forward, and How to Be a Family. 
He's also the host of the podcast, The Martin Chronicles, and the inventor of the card game, Ace of Hates. Dan, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Hi, Sugi. Hi, Whitney. How you doing? I think the last time I, well, I'm not seeing you in person now, but last time I saw you in person was at the Farrar, Strauss, and Drew Originals Party at the AWP Conference in Portland, circa 2019, which almost feels as far away as the 90s. Uh, everything been okay since then? Yeah, nothing much has been happening in the world or in anyone's <laughs> life since those days. That was a fun party. Lydia Kiesling read at that party, right. um, I believe from what would uh, eventually, I believe from Golden State. Um, yeah. Or maybe from now, I can't remember. It might be from her upcoming book, which I'm very excited about. Uh, but that was a fun party, and I remember fun parties. Very slowly, we're moving back into the era of fun parties. Very slowly, but surely. And this is a podcast about the intersection of politics and literature. So we're going to get to the way that vintage contemporaries intersects with the politics of its time. But um, just imagining actually your characters at a party where they would be. Um, undeniably fun. There so are a couple in the book, and there's one sadly yeah. deleted book party sequence when they're all younger, where they're in um, like a fancy Upper East Side apartment, maybe Plimpton's apartment, um, and and shit talking all the like literary eminences there. But I, I cut that tragically. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> well, the characters are. Uh, as it was just undeniably fun. Emily Teal is the narrator and she's just out of college and rooming with her friend Lewis. She's living in an $850 a month apartment on 7th and D and she's working as an assistant at the Safer Agency. What drew you to this character? Uh, so it's also worth knowing that it's it's 1993 or 1991 and 1993 in this particular part of the timeline where she's working at the Safer Agency and living in this uh, truly horrible apartment in the low, lower, lower, Easter, Easter, Lower East Side. Which nevertheless, many people would love to get right now at $850 a month, if that were at all possible. As long as you are willing to deal with a large mushroom growing out of the floor underneath your futon, it's, and <laughs> roaches, roaches everywhere, it's well worth it. Um, I wanted to write about um, people who were in the process of forming, and then who years later found themselves formed in ways different than they really anticipated back when they were uh, were thinking big thoughts and dreaming big dreams about the people, the artists and citizens that they would eventually become. Um, uh, and I also, like you guys, had some New York youth experience. Mine was only a summer um, in the summer of 94 a little bit after the particular time period in the 90s that this novel covers, when I lived uh, in the Lower East Side for a summer um, doing the, the NYU summer film program, which is this thing they do where you pay an insane amount of money, or in my case, my extremely kind parents who felt bad for me because I had just been dumped by my high school girlfriend, paid for me to do a summer film program at NYU the summer after my sophomore year in college. And I lived uh, on the uh, in a friend's apartment, my best friend from high school. I walked across the Lower East Side over to NYU every day. And I generally had no idea what was going on in the neighborhood. I had the blinders of, of your early 20s on you when you're just sort of trying to figure yourself out and, and, uh, and often are blind to everything else that's going on. So I didn't know, for example, that I was at the Lower East Side at a time of great political 
cultural and social ferment. I only knew that I wasn't good at making movies and I didn't seem to be getting better at it in this expensive film program. Um, and, uh, you know, I walk past community gardens every day that I didn't know that groups of people were fighting to save from the city who wanted to sell them to developers. I walked past squats every day that I didn't know that were lived in by people who weren't paying rent, but were living in a communal fashion and were fighting the city who wanted to evict them. I didn't know any of that shit. Um, I, and so I wanted to write a character who did live there around that time and who was smarter than me and had her eyes more open than mine and who came to understand these things about the place that she was living and what a remarkable time and place she was in. Yeah, I mean, I want to talk about that neighborhood because I, too, as I mentioned in the introduction, lived there um, in the like 96. And I remember those squats. I remember Tompkins Square Park being like it was. Um, it was already starting to gentrify. I think the the 13th Street where I lived uh, had a fly fishing store on it that had recently opened. And I was like, this seems different. <laughs> but... But, that, you know, that this is a famous, you know, part of New York history. My son, by the way, is about to become a freshman at NYU. So they'll have the, I'll have the pleasure of sending them a ton of money like your parents did. Um, and I just wondered if you could, you know, Veselka, you mentioned. Is that still there? I used to go to that place. Okay. I, I, was, I remember the visual parts of that neighborhood so clearly. I wondered if you could, you know, talk about that radical world you mentioned a little bit uh, um, that seems to have disappeared. Or maybe tell me if it's disappeared because I don't go down there anymore. Um, and then read from the book a bit. Well, you were on 13th Street in 96. It was only a few years before that, um, that on, on 13th Street between B and C, the city staged its biggest uh, craziest eviction of a squad ever where they literally rolled a tank down 13th street, um, oh along God. with waves of police officers to, uh, evict people from these two legendary squats on 13th, part of a big collective of six or seven buildings that were all there. I remember walking by something like that, but it wasn't obviously those if they got cleared out before I was there. Right. But so, um, but that fly fishing store was already there and, and, as young people with money started moving into the neighborhood, replacing the young people without money and the families without money who had lived there for years, um, obviously the neighborhood changed. And, you know, I talked to uh, Lucy Sant, uh, the great historian of New York City, for a piece I'm working on in conjunction with this book about that 13th Street squat eviction. And she told me, you know, she basically said, look, when people like that move into a neighborhood, there's an entire infrastructure that needs to be built around them when that kind of money flows in. And that means new restaurants and new bars. Sometimes a place like Veselka persists because it can bring a kind of griminess or grittiness that is still safe enough to feel appealing to those new people. Um, and a remarkable number of the people who were major players in the counterculture of the 80s and 90s on the Lower East Side, still managed to live in the Lower East Side. So that aspect of the neighborhood hasn't died completely, though if you ask any one of them individually, has it died, they'll all grump and tell you, yes, it has. But they're still there, and they're still living their lives, often in rent-controlled or, or um, rent-supported apartments. Um, a, few, a few of which still survive in that neighborhood. But certainly the kinds of rents that exist there um, are mean that it can no longer be a haven for artists, the kind of haven for artists with cheap real estate that every city needs to remain viable and vibrant. 
and the kind of, you know, restaurants I walked through the Lower East Side last week and I walked past a place that had like a $295 plate omakase menu. Um, <laughs> and that's a very different vibe than the Lower East Side of the 90s. For some people, it's way better. For me, it definitely signifies a different kind of city and one that doesn't support the kind of dreamers that I was writing about in this book. Did you say that the the clearing out of those large squats was before 96? Is that what you said? Okay, yeah, all right. Okay. And is the New Yorican Poets Cafe still there? Is that still a thing? That is a great question that I don't know the answer to. Okay. I think I it's long gone. Okay. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. So, you know, that's the last thing that I can dredge up out of my memory. I'm sure maybe if we sat around for longer, um, I could remember more. But I, what I'd like you to do now, if you could, is just... Read to us apart from the book talking about this neighborhood. Sure. So this is um, the first meeting between Emily and her best friend, Emily, um, uh, who when they first meet, this is the first day they meet. And almost instantly, one Emily tells the other Emily that she's no longer Emily. She's now M. M is our main character. She's M. Thiel, who came from Wisconsin and now lives in New York City. Emily is a sort of rabble rousing, very political aspiring theater director she meets in Veselka and then accompanies her to her apartment, uh, in, which is one of the squats. And here's where she explains it. Em looked around the tiny apartment. This is great, she said. I'm so impressed you have your own place. Emily seemed to understand what she was trying to say, which was, how can you afford it? Well, rent's really cheap because it's a squat, she said. Sure, Em said, nodding. She continued nodding. She nodded a few more times. Do you know what a squat is? Emily finally asked. Sure, like a dump. Emily laughed. It is a dump, that's correct. But no, the building was abandoned and we're all living here and fixing it up ourselves. We're Sunrise Squat. Oh, wow, said Em. So then who's your landlord? There is no landlord. We all just contribute rent to a central fund and use that to pay for rehab and repairs. And we all have work requirements to get the building up to code. M was aware that she was still nodding. So then who owns it? Officially New York City, but they haven't done shit with this building in years. So we just took it over. We're in the middle of negotiating with the city. And if it works out, we'll get it. You'll get a building? Maybe. Or maybe they'll evict us. There are a lot of squats in the East Village. Some of them, the tenants have made a deal and now they run the place. Some of them, the city kicked them out to sell it to rich assholes. M had finally stopped nodding because she honestly had never heard anything so crazy. So you just moved in and like took an apartment. Well, yeah, but in the beginning, you know, there was no electricity or water. There wasn't even stairs. What do you mean? There wasn't stairs. The stairs collapsed sometime in the eighties, Joe and Michael and the other original tenants had to build new ones. By the time I moved in, there were stairs and we were connected to water and the electricity worked most of the time, but we still don't have heat. What? Emily grinned. We might have it by next winter. When it gets cold, I have a pile of blankets. If there's a blizzard, I find somewhere else to sleep. What do you mean somewhere? Emily raised her eyebrow flirtatiously. Oh, 
Well, where do you live? Seventh and D. That's me and my best friend from college, Lewis. Oh, seventh and D. That's deep, al- deep alphabet city. Thank you so much. Um, I, your, both of your New York experiences predate mine. And I don't think I really understood that much about how a squat worked. And so kind of. I know I was thinking when he read that, like my son would think of this as total fantasy that there would be abandoned places on the island of Manhattan and anywhere. I I mean, I just, I found this to be such a um, vivid depiction of, yeah, I mean, I lived in New York between 2006 and 2009 and went to the Lower East Side primarily to visit a specific Sri Lankan restaurant. And um, and the New York in Poets Cafe, by the way, is still there. I looked that up um, a couple of minutes ago. And so at least that is that is still there. I'm curious, you mentioned um, in one of your answers before that you're working on a, a nonfiction project related to squats. And I wonder, how is that research related to this book? Oh, it's uh, less a project than a story I'm writing for New York Magazine about this specific eviction because the way that you promote novels these days is not that Uh. you excerpt the novel somewhere. (laughs) As we have discussed on this show. (laughs) But that you write essays tangentially related to the subjects of your novel for various publications. It's in my editor's hands now. Okay. All right. All right. Well, we will, we will look forward to reading it. I was imagining an entire book project because it seems like this, these squats are this whole world. And Um, They are. And there's a bunch of actually quite good books published on them, which were super helpful to me um, when I was writing my book for this piece. I've been interviewing more people and more people, but there's a wonderful book by a woman named Amy Staracheski, who's a a oral historian at Columbia, which is based on her oral history project of talking to people who lived in the squats called ours to keep, which is an incredible collection. It's like a, it's a mixture of, um, oral history of this milieu and uh, a spirited argument about what it means when people who do not own things start to think of themselves as owners, often sort of against their will. That's so interesting. Well, we will put a link to that in our show notes for our listeners. um, And I want to check that out myself and I'm looking forward to the, to the magazine article. And so the other, of course, inside baseball in this book is great book industry process. Um, which is so much of what this book is about. And we've done several episodes about how agents work and how to send them work and, you know, what's the way in. And Emily Teal, M, um, as we've discussed, works at a famous literary agency, um, even if her boss doesn't seem all that aggressive. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the role that the world of literary agents plays in the novel and, and how different that world is compared to what we're seeing today. The agent that M works for is a woman named Edith who is described to M by the professor who helps get her the job straight out of college as from the old school, um, which means that she is, it is quite old. She, um, she like wears cocktail dresses to work and smokes in the office and seems to spend most of her time just talking on the phone to people and is not that interested in actually making deals because many, many years ago she made one deal for a kind of like futurism book that has basically funded her small agency for the decades since. Um, So she, she is truly of the old school. And one of the fun things about this book was exploring the ways that the industry has evolved. M starts on this agency in the nineties where it's run by a single woman who doesn't care that much about the business is not that interested in expanding or finding exciting new clients and hosts a series of frustrated assistants 
who leave evidence through the years of their frustration in the file folders as they try to find clients, try to break new books, try to engage their enthusiasm for literature and are constantly shot down or dampened by Edith, who doesn't care about any of that shit. Um, and then later in the book, as the book moves into the 2000s, we see M uh, as an editor in a publishing house um, where she has advanced through her career, um, often by working on books that she, you know, that will just sell that she's doing as, as favors to other editors or for the benefit of her own profile at the house, but also working with books that she really loves that are important to her. And the, and one of the big plot turnings of the second half of the book is a rediscovery that M makes of a book from her Edith safer days uh, that she finds a way to make into a, a new thing that a new generation can experience. Certainly my, my experience with agents, with my particular agent, uh, bears no resemblance to Edith Safer. But even my time working as an agent's assistant in the, in the 90s didn't bear that much resemblance to Edith Safer. I kind of made her my version of a legend of old publishing of like clubby old two martini lunch publishing that may or may not have ever existed, um, but which represents to M her idea of what publishing is when she first gets to New York. Her ideas are really based on what she's read in old issues of the New Yorker and the way that she idolizes vintage contemporaries, the actual random house paperback line that broke a lot of uh, young and hip authors in the eighties. It's based on these fantasies. And I wanted to have her encounter some of these fantasies in real life, discover how annoying they are, uh, and then try and make a different life for herself in a different kind of publishing world later on as she's a little bit smarter, and then discover that that's annoying too, that there are problems uh, with that, not the least of which is the many structural problems built into the current and past model of publishing as a business. My agent uh, started, he's my age, uh, he started at at a, a firm like the firm that you depict in the book, which was John, it's John Hawkins and Associates. And the guy, John Hawkins, was still there. It had formerly been like the Reynolds Agency, also named for a guy. They were a very like white shoe firm. But John Hawkins was that like cigarette smoking martini guy who would let you stay in his apartment if you were coming through town. And it was, it was, it, that, that world did exist. Those agents were there. And it's like um, appealing. It's also very clubby. And yeah. tends to mean that a certain kind of book makes it past that particular gatekeeper. That's you true. Know, Edith Safer is not interested in, in the very exciting, maybe weird and avant-garde novel that M really wants her to be interested in. She doesn't see that. She's not going to sell that. Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
uh, anyway, yeah, I remember that, you know, they had, you know, like, it's like the backlist page for things. I think they were, they had represented Alex Haley, you know, that's, you know, like, you know, that's somebody who's, you know, sold a lot of books. Um, if I'm remembering that correctly, I'll have to fact check and see if that was true. Um, anyway, let's talk about the friendships at the center of this novel. There's Emily Thiel, the narrator who becomes a literary agent's assistant, and then an editor, and her friend Emily, who's a theater director, who they both appeared in the scene that you just read, and then later a bartender with addiction issues. And I always say that novels are about ethical conflicts between characters. Um, and how would you describe the ethical conflicts between these two friends? I mean, put simply, Emily believes that she is, she and everyone she knows is fated to be extraordinary. And M is not convinced that's necessarily the case. Emily is willing to do anything and say anything with the knowledge that she is and will be extraordinary. And M finds herself being the person who often has to clean up the messes uh, as a result. That's the central conflict between them. But there's also something deeply appealing and fulfilling about having someone in your life who's convinced that you will be as extraordinary as them. And that leads M, I think, down some, some stray paths that don't take her anywhere good, but it also leads her to a bunch of things like, for example, the squat that changed her life forever. Um, and it was fun to me to take these two characters who are, who have two very different ways of looking at art and morality and the things you ought to do to get what you want. Um, and make them friends because we often end up, especially in our twenties, friends with people whose ethics, um, whose aesthetics and whose, uh, philosophies are just wildly different from ours, but we just ended up in the same dorm room or crappy apartment and we talked forever and that's it. We, we are friends forever. I feel like, um, Emily is what my former colleague Charlie Baxter would call a Captain Happen character from sort of the second she appears. It's like, oh, man, shit's going to happen now. Um, and so she's just yeah, she's tremendously fun to read and, and really funny also. And um, the other core friendship in the novel is between M, Emily Teal and the writer Lucy Deming, whom Emily meets early in the 90s. And the sort of occasion of their introduction is that Lucy was friends with M's mom. And so there's this sort of funny moment where it's like M had already had the experience of like being the, the being Yenta with like everyone's friend who had a novel in their drawer. And I was like, Oh God. Um, Anyone um, who's ever worked in publishing has had that happen to them 10 trillion times. And usually it's so annoying, but every once in a while, you never there's know. Lucy Deming. If you live yeah. in there's Kansas City, you don't even have to work in publishing. You can just be a writer and people will right. hand you their stuff and expect that you can just call someone and get it published. Right. And then you, here's Lucy you, Deming. Oh, English? Here we go. Exactly. And 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 so like Emily sort of, you know, is on the phone with her mom and is like her mom's like, "Have you called Lucy?" and she's like, "Oh, I will. I will." And she sort of like comes to this lunch like it's going to be a chore and kind of discovers real joy in this in this friendship with this person who has written, um, whose, whose novels, you know, she describes it to Emily and Emily's like, that sounds like a novel your mom would read. And on the other hand, like there's this real pleasure to their conversation about writing. And so I'm curious to hear you talk about how these two friendships play off each other because they do in such interesting ways, Lucy and M and M and Emily. 
while they play off each other in in what they give M, um, our central character, right? One gives M the sense that she um, is exciting and extraordinary and is wrapped up in extraordinary things. And the other gives her a real sense of comfort and the ordinary um, in ways that that she finds necessary as even as she, her life does become briefly extraordinary um, in through the 90s in her relationship with Emily and the, the struggles between them in the struggles for the squats. Um, it also gives her a sense of what different kinds of art can and should do. It's not an accident that Emily doesn't think much of Lucy's books and that Lucy's books in a lot of ways resemble what this novel is trying to do. This novel is would love to be a novel that your mom would love to read. Um, and, uh, and later in the book, when M works as an editor, she delivers a kind of manifesto on behalf of books like this, books that are not meant to establish the extraordinariness of their creators, books that are not meant as um, uh, statements of difficulty or uh, as combative uh, modes of expression, the way that Emily has always thought of theater, but are instead meant to bring joy and comfort and just like the right amount of sadness to your reading and artistic life. Um, Emily doesn't believe in those kinds of things. And, and as the book comes on, does. And that's one of the ways that she develops. M fights against that because she has this idea of what literature is. Um, when she first reads Lucy's books, she finds herself enjoying them and then feeling disappointed in herself that she does. Um, and, you know, that definitely mirrors the way that I interacted with literature in my 20s and the way I interact with it now and the things I looked for from it in my 20s and the things I look for from it now. Um, and uh, and I called it Vintage Contemporaries because it because it describes these three friends, the, the way they feel about each other, but also because that particular line of books really has a particular meaning for anyone who loves books. And, uh, and part of this novel's argument is that that meaning isn't exactly necessarily what you might have thought it was when you were 22. So toward the very end of the novel, M dramaturgs a show that Emily is directing. And M asks Emily if it felt different when she was actually, quote unquote, making something. And M replies, I'm always making something. That's what you never get. That's what editing is for me. And so I wonder if you could talk about that editing as making something. I've been an editor for a really long time. I'm an editor at Slate. I, I mostly write now, but I spent seven or eight years spending almost all of my time editing and before that at other places. And I really love editing because it is not an art form, but you are still making art. You are working with an artist to help them bring the best possible version of what it is they want to put into the world. Uh, and to convince them that it's worth doing and then to act as that thing's advocate out in the world. And I find that really enriching and satisfying. And I think that 
people don't always understand the value of the the support work that goes into art making. It is very easy to think of writers or painters or uh, playwrights or directors as like lone geniuses up in their various garrets. Um, and to not think about the way that pretty much all of them, even Van Gogh really needed his brother, pretty much everyone who makes art depends on readers, editors, uh, assistants, critics, production managers, people who support that vision, question it when necessary, push them to make it better, and see the whole work in their head, even when maybe the creator can't yet do that. I find that really magical. I love when I can do that for someone. And I wanted M to realize that just because she is not the genius writer that Emily has always told her she's eventually going to be, does not mean that she does not create amazing things. She does it in concert with other people, writers like her writers, artists like Emily. I mean, in the end, this is a novel about being an editor. And now there's a lot of nonfiction books and stories about editors. I was thinking when you were talking about uh, Thomas Wolfe uh, writing Look Homeward Angel, which got a lot of editing by Maxwell Perkins, a very famous editor, and then like being pissed off that Perkins had gotten credit for editing it and then rewriting the whole book as The Web and the Rock, which sucked, and not proving anything by doing that. But anyway, um, but I was trying to think of novels that have uh, that features editors, uh, an editor as a main character, and I, I didn't get a lot. Um, am I missing something? Are, are there books that I should know about? Or? I don't know of any other novels. I'm sure there are, and someone will email us to tell us. Please I do. didn't know of one. Um, and I liked putting an editor at the center of it because it is, because I think it's a funny line of work. It, it allows you to encounter a bunch of widely varying pieces of work that you have to like figure out in some way. So we see um, M editing work she really loves and truly believes in. And we also see her editing something so bad that she has to, she's forced to write, I hate this on her arm. So she won't write it on the manuscript itself. Um, but it also does provide, as I said, these real aesthetic pleasures and they rhymed with the aesthetic pleasures that I was interested in this book, the, the pleasures of making things with people who matter to you um, and, and learning to be satisfied with uh, an artistic invisibility um, and realizing that, that being visible is not necessarily what matters the most. I mean, as you know, writers gossip about editors all the time. And in New York, where there are so many editors, it's think it's telling that there's a blind spot, you know, that, that you know, that, where's the Sonny Maida novel? I don't know. I think it's Man, maybe I'd that read the hell so out of that. <laughs> yeah, I think like that would be that would be a very popular novel. Um, and I was just thinking about what you were saying about visibility in editing, because I feel like also in journalism in recent years, I mean, for example, at the Times, there's been a move to make editing more visible, um, almost as a form of keeping editors accountable, right? Like now there are those pieces that say, you know, this person edited the piece at the bottom. Um, and that I feel like is sort of an, uh, a move in, in a direction that I wouldn't have predicted, like say 15 years ago. There's value in it. The Times Magazine experimented with that in the Hugo Lindgren era, I believe. And I don't think they do it anymore. I think they stopped that experiment. But I like knowing who edits a piece in part because 
it gives you, well, I mean, practically as a person who has spent long periods of his life freelancing, it gives the freelancer a, an inside view into who they should be pitching, which tends to create a lot more transparency, even in top level magazines, which is valuable for freelancers everywhere, but particularly for freelancers who don't come from money or come from connections uh, or who are disadvantaged in other ways. I also like it because it gives you a sense uh, of the, the mechanics of making this thing. It makes visible this thing that is usually invisible. And I never read it. I think some people didn't like that when Hugo instituted that because they felt like it was editors claiming credit in a like Maxwell Perkinsy way. I never read it that way. I read it as it is useful to show people that there are names and faces behind these stories that you read, that they're not simply appearing out of nothing. And in the same way that those sort of like inside the times articles for subscribers that talk about how pieces get made can be really useful for people in figuring out what, how journalism actually works, knowing the editor who helped usher a piece uh, or a book or whatever into existence um, gives you as a writer or a reader a greater sense of what it takes to make something like this happen. And another space in which, um, and we're sort of talking about these, I guess, in, in these parallel tracks, publishing and journalism, um, like a place that there has been a lot of invisibility a lack, and a lack of transparency has been the junior ranks of publishing. And so I wanted to ask you, um, we recently learned that our most listened to episode of 2022 was with the writer Molly McGee, um, who had been an editor at Tor. And when we had her on, she had just resigned that position in a way that kind of went went viral. And she was indicting what publishing does to junior employees in terms of the huge workload and also a real lack of opportunities for advancement. And as I was reading Vintage Contemporaries, I couldn't help but think of that interview and, and what Molly had said. And I wonder if you can talk about what you perceive as the current state of affairs for you know the M of today and uh, how it compares to the M of Vintage Contemporaries era? Uh, I'm glad you asked this question because Vintage Contemporaries is being published by HarperCollins, uh, a publisher whose junior staff currently are mostly on strike as we record this episode. Uh, my publishing date is less than two weeks away. It doesn't seem like they're probably going to settle this strike before my pub date comes. The, the company is, is refusing really even to come to the table. And I find that really frustrating. And I, and I find myself really inspired by those union members, those junior employees who are striking to try to remedy some of these problems, to give themselves a little more money, to decrease the workload, to have the company recognize the work that they do and give them chances to actually advance through the incredibly like narrow funnel that is advancement through the publishing industry. And honestly, you know, the, the two eras that I'm writing about in publishing the nineties and the two thousands, um, have real problems. Um, and I try to illustrate some of those problems for junior employees. It sort of seems worse now. I'm not a junior employee. Um, I haven't been for a long time, but from my perspective, it seems like they're working even harder. They're only making a little more money than they were in 2005, uh, Whereas, I don't know if you've noticed, but everything else is a lot more expensive than it was in 2005. Um, and it's it's even harder to advance in that world because the world, the publishing world is contracting in both journalism and in book publishing. So there are just fewer opportunities. And so um, 
you know, my characters, M has to deal with uh, having a boss, you know, basically take credit for her hard work and to feel excluded. Later, the junior employees at her publishing house have to deal with a boss who's like super toxic and a gigantic pain in the ass, borderline abusive. Um, those problems still exist and haven't necessarily gotten better despite various um, social action movements and, um, and come to Jesus moments across the arts and culture worlds. But then also they're in places that have even less money and feel even more pressed by shareholders and are probably now owned by another publisher uh, or have merged with some other publisher and are, and half their jobs are disappearing. And so it doesn't seem great. I'm really proud of the union members at Harper who are striking. I really want my publisher to meet them at the table and, um, and actually negotiate. I certainly do not want my publisher to hire a bunch of scabs and temps, which is what word is they're considering doing. And, uh, and to publish a book that is at least in some ways about a young woman with no particular connections, managing despite everything to advance in the publishing world and then coming to terms with the compromises and blind spots she had to uh, employ in order to do that. And then to see my publisher basically attempt to force upon junior staff those same compromises and blind spots, if they ever want to have a hope of succeeding, is super fucking depressing. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, that's amazing talk. I appreciate it. And I'm not laughing because uh, I think it's funny, but because it's accurate. But look, I, I am I did laugh at the book and I thought it was a lovely, lovely piece of writing. And I hope that our listeners will go out and pick it up. Vintage contemporaries. Yes. But for yourselves. Maybe I guess I'm most people's mother's age now. Anyway, I'm somebody's <laughs> dad. Pick it up. It comes out on January 17th. And Dan, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, guys. Thank you. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Ann Knigendorf. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. Please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done it yet. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. We'll also post that show page with links to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Instagram at fiction.nonfiction.podcast. You can find video of our interviews at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel and on our website at fnfpodcast.net, where our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. Happy reading! <laughs>